This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. In contemporary America, we now face a war on reality. Facts are disputed, though they may be well established. Science is denied, though it may be solidly researched. Even truth itself is challenged as never before by an army of doubt peddlers seeking to further their own interests. These matters have been a great concern to our guest today. He's a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History at Boston University and is the author of several books on the generation and validation of scientific knowledge. Dr. Lee McIntyre comes to this pursuit from a background in philosophy, having obtained a PhD in that subject from the University of Michigan. He is an instructor in ethics at the Harvard Extension School and the author of books which include Respecting Truth, Willful Ignorance in the Internet Age, and The Scientific Attitude, Defending Science from Denial, Fraud, and Pseudoscience. His 2018 work, Post-Truth, looked at how facts and truth were debased by the Trump era and was named Book of the Week by Fareed Zakaria of CNN. The next year saw the 2022 midterm elections give the Republican Party the House of Representatives. The attempted coup of January 6th and the big lie of a stolen election, as alleged by Donald Trump, was not repudiated by his party. Instead, the GOP gained by shielding the former president. A scary prospect as we look ahead to election 2024. All this has prompted Lee McIntyre to produce yet another book being launched this very week. It is titled On Disinformation, How to Fight for Truth and Protect Democracy. It is a succinct volume containing what we think are many important points and much valuable advice. We're keen to discuss this book, and luckily for us, the author is prepared to do just that ahead of his talk with the New York Times, we're somewhat tickled to note. This enables us to be able to say welcome to Radio Parallax, Lee McIntyre. Thanks for having me. Well, you start the book by noting that the January 6th storming of the Capitol was completely predictable in a post-truth world that you've written about. Can you start by explaining what you mean by the term post-truth. Yeah, uh, my earlier book uh, in 2018 was called Post-Truth, and I define it as the political subordination of reality. And what I mean by that is that at the time, a lot of people were talking about post-truth as this idea that feelings mattered more than facts, uh, and that's part of it. But I think that there's a uh, reason behind it, a motivation, and the motivation is political say somebody wants something and reality is standing in their way, and so they subvert reality in favor of their political interests. I think that's what Trump did from the very first day of his presidency, and the, the through line, the, you know, the capper to the whole thing was January 6th. Yes, indeed. And, and I, as we talk, I'd like to also clarify one point, the difference between disinformation and misinformation. Yeah, that's a very important distinction, and it's one that uh, it, it took me a while to, to come to terms with, which is really why I uh, wrote the new book, because I wanted to make sure that I was clear on this. Uh, misinformation is an accident or a mistake. Misinformation is when you believe something that happens to be false. Uh, nobody knows how, maybe. Uh, maybe you just heard it somewhere, you just thought it up, but it turns out not to be true, in which case maybe you could be convinced by facts to give up that belief, to change that belief. Disinformation is not like that. Disinformation is a lie. 
a disinformation is a falsehood that is intentionally created by somebody who has an interest at stake in having an army of people uh, believe what they're telling them to be true, even though it's not true. And the really insidious part of it is not just to believe the falsehood, but to hate anyone who doesn't also believe that falsehood. So I think that disinformation can be inherently polarizing into a kind of an us versus them mentality. Well, politicians are they're not particularly known for their honesty, and, and, and you do not go out of your way to point fingers politically, I, I think it's fair to say, but it is somewhat inescapable to say that Donald Trump and Republican disinformation is, I'm assuming, what you said to, to write out about when you call for protecting democracy. Um, the threat really is coming from one direction, isn't it? It, it is, and it, it, you raise a really important point there because— it is completely possible for disinformation to come from the left. Uh, disinformation was invented in the 19th, modern disinformation warfare was invented in the 1920s by Vladimir Lenin uh, when he appointed Felix Dzerzhensky as his first director of the Cheka to fight back against the counter-revolutionaries during the Russian Revolution. It's hard to get farther left than uh, Vladimir Lenin. These days, however, the threat of disinformation is, for the most part, coming from the right. Uh, these are the folks who, like Trump and uh, others in the GOP that we can talk about, who don't like uh, what reality is. They don't like that Trump actually lost the election. They didn't like the truth about the vaccines during the pandemic. They don't like the truth about climate change. And so they hope to subvert it. And there are various ways, uh, if you look at the information warfare uh, toolkit that Putin uses. There are various ways to do that, some of which uh, Trump has straight up copied. Well, as we talk this up, I wanted to just throw something out from your book that's very simple that I thought was rather profound. You noted that just as repeating lies can be effective, so is repeating what is true. So simple, but true. Amazing, isn't it? <laughs> well, we all, we all have built-in cognitive biases. There are about a hundred of them. If you read uh, uh, Kahneman and Tversky's work, they, you know, they talk about this a lot. Uh, cognitive scientists are, are fascinated with this stuff, and there's good literature on it. One of the deepest cognitive biases that we have is something called the repetition effect. This has been known to uh, propagandists, uh, you know, I'm sure for millennia, uh, think to um, uh, Goebbels during the uh, uh, Hitler uh, time in Germany, where you know, they would repeat the lies over and over. So, I mean, again, this has been used by propagandists down through the centuries. What people are not realizing, I think, you know, they hear somebody repeating a lie over and over again, and they think, why are they doing that? It's so ridiculous. They're just making fools of themselves. No, they're not. They're using that technique because it's effective. Uh, it can be shown through psychological experimentation. It has been shown that repetition makes you believe something uh, that isn't true because you've heard it more often. The technical name for that is the illusory truth effect. That's when it's false information that you hear over and over, and so you start to think it's true. That's why Trump is always saying it's a hoax, it's a witch hunt. He keeps repeating the slogan. But, amazing, it works for truth as well. And one of the high points of doing the research for this new book was that I got to talk to some people in counterintelligence, some people who work in cyber warfare uh, on the American side. And they 
uh, said to me, uh, you know, look, what we need is more people telling the truth. We, we need people out there using the repetition effect on behalf of truth because it works for that, too. Well, it's it's worth a moment, I think, to look back in time. Uh, you examine in the book how we got to this present situation, uh, uh, particularly of direct challenging of science uh, using disinformation. You cited how back in 1953, faced with damning evidence of a link between cigarettes and cancer, Big Tobacco decided to turn their resources, which were pretty considerable, to creating an alternative narrative. Can you talk about how that sort of blazed a trail that others have followed? That's really marked. I think, is the beginning of modern science denial. Science denial was around, of course, before that, back to Galileo and Giordano Bruno. But, uh, but a, you know, a, a campaign, a strategic, organized, coordinated campaign, that really began in 1953 when these tobacco executives came together to learn what to do by asking a public relations expert. So, and his advice is to fight the science. So, and that doesn't mean you know, fight the science in a way that a scientist would by coming up with evidence on the other side, it meant public relations. It meant uh, marketing. It meant taking out full-page ads in American newspapers to say that, you know, there was still scientific doubt about this and then lobbying the journalists and the editors to tell that side of the story. Trouble was, there really was no other side of the story, um, but they were creating doubt where there was because it served their business interests. There's a wonderful book on this by Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway called Merchants of Doubt, which talks about how the cigarette companies lied for 40 years about the link between smoking and cancer because they wanted to be able to continue to sell cigarettes. They didn't need to show that smoking didn't cause lung cancer. They just needed to manufacture doubt about it. We're speaking with Lee McIntyre about his book, On Disinformation, How to Fight for Truth and Protect Democracy. And I, I can't resist uh, throwing out the quote you, you used in the book from Upton Sinclair's famous quote saying, it's hard to get someone to understand something when his income depends on his not understanding it. it it's worth mentioning, I think, that uh, those who peddle falsehood sometimes come to believe their own disinformation. They do. And you put your finger on one of the most subtle and important things in this debate. Probably I didn't say enough about it in the book, but there's a terrific book on this called The Folly of Fools by a brilliant evolutionary biologist, Robert Trivers, in which he talks about the power of self-delusion. Uh, think about it from an evolutionary perspective. Who is going to be the more effective liar, the one who you know has a tell because they know that what they're saying isn't true, or the one who after enough time, sort of comes to believe their own lie. He makes a very strong case in that book that uh, lying is, you know, a good evolutionary strategy if you can, you know, it helps you get resources, if it helps you get your genes to the next generation. And believing your own lies is the most effective way to lie. So that can be a real problem because, as you point out, sometimes the liars can convince themselves, and you see that in American politics all the time. Yes, I, they're even dating whether, if, did Trump really know what he's saying was a lie? I mean, that's sort of a side issue, but I mean, it's like, it's actually become a legal issue. It, it has. And, you know, the, the legal issue, I'm not a lawyer, so the legal issue, of course, drives me crazy because uh, Trump acts as if, well, if you can't prove that I didn't uh, know that it wasn't true, then, you know, you can't hold me accountable. 
Well, sure you can. I, I forget who it was that I just saw on uh, TV say, you know, you can believe that the money in the bank is yours, and you can even lie about it. You can say it from the rooftops. What you can't do is back up a truck and steal the money. I mean, that's still illegal. No matter what you believe, it's still a crime to take the money out of the bank. So, I mean, that is a tricky issue in the law, the one about intent. I think, though, that there is evidence that at some level, um, even people who are self-deluded, uh, and especially Trump in this case, knows he's lying. He understands. I mean, that's kind of the bottom line point about disinformation. The person who's sharing it knows that it's false. And why are they doing it? Because they've got interest at stake. They're profiting by it. Sometimes, like the cigarette companies, they profit in money. But Trump wanted to profit in terms of political power. I, I don't think there's a uh, I don't think there's a reasonable case to be made. I'm not talking about a legal case, but a you know an epistemological case if there is such a thing. I don't think there's a case to be made that he didn't believe that he'd lost the election. He just couldn't say it, and he couldn't stand it, and he couldn't face it, giving his individual psychology. Well, speaking of evolution, as we were just a second ago, or evolution of ideas, um, as a student of biology and medical doctor, I can't resist taking a slight detour into the fact that I've always been amazed at the efforts to find fault with evolution and creationism, et cetera, trying to put that into schools. A famous geneticist once said that nothing makes sense in biology without evolution. Yet I noticed some years back, I watched every GOP candidate up on the debate stage refuse to endorse evolution as a fact. And uh, I think, uh, would you agree that some of this current denial of science traces back to, you know, even like Scope's monkey trial and coming forward from there? Absolutely. I think there was one guy who raised his hand and said that it was real. I can't remember who, but he didn't make it very far in the in the in the GOP. Um, no, you're you're right. It does go back. To, I mean, evolution denial was really a precursor to um, the modern science denial that I just explained, even about tobacco, about climate change, of course. Uh, uh, really the, the heated debate that we now have about vaccines was all predated by the Scopes Monkey trial. Uh, and there again, I mean, what was the interest at stake? It was a re- ideological interest about uh, religion that, you know, they, they just could not have it that evolution was true. And, you know, it goes back to that quotation you read earlier about, you know, you, you just, it's pretty hard to get them to understand, it, not when they're salary, but when they're, I don't know, their entire life, their religious beliefs depend on them not understanding it. They didn't want to believe in evolution. Interesting part, I mean, as a philosopher of science, I find this really fascinating. That strategy morphed after the Scopes trial, uh, and you get up to the modern era, where then it became, well, it's not that we can't teach evolution in public schools, because they were doing it by the 70s and 80s. It was that we have to, alongside it, teach uh, creationism. That got struck down in the courts. So they came up with something called intelligent design, which was uh, creationism in disguise, or as somebody once said, creationism in a cheap tuxedo, um, and wanted to teach that in the public schools. So there's been denial about a lot of things for a long, long period of time. What makes it different now is that it is coordinated, it's strategic, um, and what allows it to be so highly coordinated is the Internet. The Internet really allows all of those 
lies, all of the bad information, to be amplified and to recruit new members. And then we get polarized around it. But, but you're really right to bring up the Scopes trial because I guess, I mean, that was organized pushback. That was organized science denial, even pre-internet. You're right. These, these forces that wanted to get this stuff taught in schools, creationism, uh, they said, well, it's, what's important to, to teach the controversy? And I think your book uh, goes a great length to explain how there's this false idea out there that if the media is presenting both sides of an issue, even if one is a crackpot side, that they've somehow done their job. Yeah, teach the controversy. What a wonderful, open-minded uh, uh, way to go, right? So when you have a NASA uh, launch of a rocket, you should have a flat earther <laughs> saying, no, that didn't really happen. <laughs> no, of course, you'd never do that. That's not the way the media is supposed to uh, report on a factual matter. Um, you don't have to give a microphone to somebody who uh, doesn't know what they're talking about or is lying about it. Uh, whether they believe it is immaterial. It's not a position to be given voice. You don't, you don't have to uh, allow that person to amplify something like that. So notice the strategy from the tobacco companies. Part of their idea was, as I said, to go to the editors and journalists and try to get them to teach, to tell the other side of the story. So, you know, yes, um, teach the controversy sounds fair-minded. Well, but imagine, what happens when the flat earthers get on the school board and they want you to teach the controversy about in the... Uh, in the science classroom in elementary school about whether the earth is flat. You just, you'd never stand for it. So why do you stand for that in, in evolution or biology? I, I don't think that we should. You don't have to give voice to that. Why do journalists do it? Because they don't want to be accused of political bias. It just seems, it's, it's a, a lazy person's objectivity to say, well, we're going to show that we're not biased by giving each side an equal uh, amount of time to speak. But as I, I said years ago, I can't remember the context, the halfway point between the truth and a lie is still a lie. You can't give equal time to both sides and then hope that your audience figures out what the truth is. That's just that's irresponsible journalism. On disinformation, offer some possible solutions to these problems of polluted content. Um, and, and, you know, talking about both sides, you, you mentioned that the, the fairness doctrine, uh, when it came to opinions, was, uh, was a good thing. It got abandoned a long time ago, and we've, we've not profited from that. Yeah, the, the fairness doctrine was a good thing as long as it lasted, because, you know, this is a piece of legislation that was, uh, you know, the, the broadcast TV had to abide by in order, you know, to use the public airwaves, right? They couldn't use it for uh, just one-sided political content, which is to say that if they, to the extent to which they did, they had to give the other side equal time. This had something of a deterrent effect, right? Because if you knew that you were going to have to give equal time to the other side, then, you know, maybe you'd be a little bit more careful about, you know, the person you were just about to have on your TV. Um yeah, yeah, I discussed it in the book. I'm not, I'm not 100% advocating that we should uh, go back to the fairness doctrine because I'm not sure that just restoring that piece of legislation would work now. For one thing, we've got cable TV, which is private. You know, they're not subject to the same rules about the public airways that broadcast television is. And I'm not sure you can put that genie back in the bottle. Um, you know, it, it, within 
you know, to have one panel have to tell both sides is a good thing if you can do it. Now, of course, after the Fairness Doctrine was rescinded, we got Rush Limbaugh, we got Fox News, and I think what people were hoping is that we would have a, an omnivorous media diet and we would hear something on one network and then the rebuttal on the other network and be able to make up our own minds. What really happens is that we're in a news silo and people tend to watch one network uh, and they don't hear the other side. So it's not it's not really the case that balance within a network is the same as balance across networks. What I'm hoping for is that the uh, Congress now will take a look at the Fairness Doctrine again and not just reinstitute it, but say, you know, what's the best modern legislation that we could do to try to have the same sort of an effect where we're holding media outlets responsible for only telling one side of the story. I think it's certainly fair to say that this so-called free market of ideas didn't pan out as some might have hoped. But so, social media, unlike news outlets, is actually more or less officially exempt from lawsuits for putting out false information. And big tech very much wants to keep it that way, even though a majority of Americans uh, are now getting their news from social media. So do you think we can hold them accountable? It's a real problem, isn't it? Because Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, really people forget that it has two parts to it. One part says that the social media companies are not responsible for the content that's on their platforms. You know, if somebody else puts up something that's, you know, egregious, you know, you're not going to hold the social media comp companies responsible. You can't sue them because of what somebody else put up on their platform. But there's another aspect to it, which is that it also protects them for taking down something that they don't approve of for whatever reason, that they can't be sued, right? And free speech doesn't uh, free speech protects us from being censored by government, not from uh, Twitter or Facebook. So, so why don't they use that more? Why don't the social media companies decide we're not going to be in the disinformation business and we're going to take these posts down that are false posts about vaccines or about election denial? And they don't. And the reason they don't is because it doesn't make them any money. When the social media companies are serious, um, they can do amazing things. They made a decision a long time ago that pornography and terrorism and beheadings would lose them money. And so they scrubbed for that. You've never seen it on your Facebook feed. They also made a decision that they could uh, make a lot of money from uh, engagement and that uh, political content, you know, uh, that political content, even if it was misleading, was engaging. And so they leave up what is really tantamount to lies in some cases because it brings them business. They could do a better job if they wanted to, but they don't. The book is On Disinformation, How to Fight for Truth and Democracy, and we're speaking with its author, Lee McIntyre. Well, you point out that uh, certain beliefs just make people feel good, and therefore they're not particularly challengeable um, by using facts. And while some people are just flat-out unreachable in delusional beliefs, you, you feel it's important we should all try to reach out to people on a personal level, because that is how we can sometimes change harmful opinions. Yeah, I wrote a whole book about this called How to Talk to a Science Denier. And believe it or not, I actually went to a flat Earth convention uh, and talked to them face-to-face -to, -face to see what it would take in order to talk to somebody who you know, had such beliefs. 
And um, it was really an important thing to do. And what I determined is that you could get somebody to listen to you if you listen to them first. You could not necessarily change their mind. Um, but I do, uh, I do believe this. There, there are some people who do change their mind on, you know, radical climate denial or even flat earth or radical vaccine denial. And if you look at how it happens, it always happens in the same way. It's because they heard the facts from someone that they trusted who was patient and kind and listened to them in a calm way. Um, I think that is an important way to approach it. Problem is it doesn't always work. It doesn't even usually work, which means that we've, we can't have that be the sole tool in our toolkit to fight back against disinformation. If all we're going to do is talk to the people who believe the falsehood, we're never going to make it. And the other thing is, those people are victims. I mean, we we need to protect them to the extent that we can. And I think we do that by fighting the amplification of disinformation. You can't get the creators to stop creating it. You can't get some of the believers to stop believing it. But you can, I think, stop the amplification of disinformation if we uh, handle it in the right way. And my book is about what ordinary citizens can do to work on that problem. Something else that surprised me from your book was that how, how, what a small number of, of, of people it can be out there generating disinformation, causing so much uh, uh, mischief, and that if we could force the companies to just basically exclude some of these people, we could do a lot of good. The Center for Countering Digital Hate found in 2019 that 65% of the anti-vax propaganda on Twitter was due to 12 people. They call them the disinformation dozen. And yes, if you deplatform people, it has an amazing effect. I mean, it, you keep them from hearing the, the disinformation, and then you know they they uh, don't go down the rabbit hole. Uh, night before Elon Musk took over Twitter, uh, I checked. Uh, you know, because he hadn't had a chance to influence it yet. And eight of those dozen were still on Twitter. So, I mean, they had all that time between 2019 and, you know, whatever month it was that uh, um, Elon Musk, a couple of years later, took over Twitter, and they didn't deplatform uh, any of those other eight people. Well, about 15 or so years ago on this program, we spoke to Chris Hedges. He was making a point at that time that he thought America was careening toward fascism. Uh, I thought that was a little alarmist at the time, but over the intervening years, I think it's hard to find reassurance that maybe that is not the case. Yeah, you ought to send that man uh, a gift because uh, he, <laughs> he was right a little early, I think, um, there are other people since then who have, uh, you know, made other warnings. Uh, one of them is a friend of mine, Jason Stanley, wrote a book called How Propaganda Works, and then another book called How Fascism Works, and then Tim Snyder's wonderful book on tyranny. These are warning calls that, you know, what we're facing now can end up in authoritarianism, fascism, autocracy, whatever you want to call it. You know, if you look around the world, both through history and now in other countries, in Hungary, in Turkey, uh, in the Philippines, in uh, Bol Bolsonaro's Brazil before he lost that election, and clearly in Russia and China, you see that uh, dictators understand that 
If you can control the information flow, you can control the population. It's really troubling that some former democracies are now what are called electoral dictatorships. They're places where they have the uh, patina of being a democracy because they still have elections, but they have but the deck is stacked and the elections are effectively rigged. That's what we almost had in the United States, and what we might still have if Trump gets back into office. If Trump wins his second term, I think it'll be the last free and fair election we ever have in this country. He's already announced his agenda for a second term, and it's, it's quite fascist. Well, Lee, we think the public needs a lot more books like yours. I hope our listeners will view uh, some of your talks on YouTube, as well as reading uh, this current book on disinformation and, and some of your prior works. Uh, is there something you want to have them check out in particular? And, and please, at this point, feel free to plug any of your websites. Yes. Uh, the best way you can find out about me and my work is my website, leadmacintirebooks.com. Um, of course, I'd be happy if people would uh, buy my book. But let me also recommend to you an absolutely free book. You can get a PDF of it on the Internet, or you can write to NATO and get a free copy. They'll send you one. They sent me one. It's called The Handbook of Russian Information Warfare. It's a training manual written by NATO for their soldiers and commanders to get ready for the information war that we're already in. And it is an absolutely frightening book, which talks about the tactics and strategies that uh, the Russian government has used for information warfare against the United States for the last couple of decades. I think that the really fascinating thing about that book is to realize that not only have we been in an information war with a foreign government for 20 years, but that in some ways that the strategy outlined in that book was copied by Trump in what's now the, uh, really, I think to, uh, you have to say that he was the first American uh, person to pull off a successful domestic disinformation campaign against the whole United States. Uh, I'm not saying he read that book, but he certainly knows the tactics described in it. Well, in closing, your book is certainly a call to action, and, and I want to, you know, before we close, just uh, have you throw out any other homework for our listeners uh, that we, you want to recommend we, we take up? Yeah, the one most important thing that you can remember is this. It's impossible to win in this information war unless you know that you're in one. When you hear your cable TV host say misinformation, in your head say, is that misinformation or disinformation? If it's a lie, then it's disinformation. If it's a lie, then there's a liar. So why aren't they reporting on that? Why aren't they saying who the liar is? The way that the mainstream media right now treats the problem simply by using the word misinformation when they don't need to makes it sound like it's a natural disaster, like a hurricane, which makes you feel like there's nothing you can do about it. Once you get in the mindset that it's information war, that it's disinformation, then there is something that you can do about it. And the end of my book, I have 10 steps that the ordinary citizen can take to fight back. I hope people will read that and understand one of the points of disinformation is to make you feel helpless. You are not helpless. There's something that every one of us can do uh, in order to fight back. We can't wait on the Internet companies or the government to save us. This has to be a grassroots effort. We've been speaking with author Lee McIntyre about his excellent new book, On Disinformation, How to Fight for Truth and Democracy. 
Um, I, I hope that we careen down toward the 2024 election. Maybe you could uh, come back and give us a report card on how you think we're doing. Well, uh, yes. Uh, before the election, I'm happy to do it. After the election, I'm happy to come back and talk. For Depending on how the election goes, you might have to interview me from jail. I don't know. Well, I got a feeling we'll be in the next cell. <laughs> That's right. Maybe we'll be close. <laughs> All right. Well, Lee McIntyre, we appreciate your speaking with us very much, and we encourage you to keep doing what you're doing. We, we all need more of it. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. All righty. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Let's take a short break. That's all I ever get from you.